Joe was actually able to land a job so relatively fast and quickly. You know, after the election shows, he built a lot of goodwill when he was in, you know, D.C. Because if you haven't, one of the worst jobs to be is to be as an ex-lawmaker that nobody likes. Well, like oh, I said, no. <laughs> Stay tuned. That's just part of what's ahead in our bonus content following this week's edition of In Focus. Exploring the issues that matter most in Indiana. This is In Focus with Dan Spieler. Good morning. We're covering a number of topics today, including Birch Buys Life and Legacy. But we start with the tragedy in New Zealand and concerns about hate and extremism around the world and here in Indiana, where discussions continue about the topic of hate crimes. Our Kelly Rinke has more. Muslims in Indianapolis say it has shaken them, but they're not really surprised it happened. They even believe that attacks on their faith are nothing new in central Indiana. We're all just devastated. A heavy moment for Indianapolis Muslims coming in for afternoon prayers. Just like dozens of others in New Zealand, before 49 people were gunned down at two mosques. We're reliving those moments right before um, those worshippers had gotten shot. Fariel Khatri was heartbroken to hear what happened, but she says she's not surprised. We've seen this, the result of the hateful rhetoric. Um, and so it's devastating every time. Two years ago, the Islamic Society of North America in Plainfield was vandalized. Hurtful, offensive words were spray painted on a building. And last month, this man was accused of shooting and killing Mustafa Ayobi. Some in the Muslim community want it investigated as a hate crime. Unless we can uh, give protection to all, no one one would be safe. Azhar Khan is calling for a tougher hate crime bill after a watered-down version passed in the state Senate. If the rest of the states can have that protection for minorities, why can't our state have that? And that was Kelly Rinke reporting. Also today we're remembering the life and legacy of former Senator Birch Bayh. This past week I spoke on the phone with Bayh's longtime friend, former Indiana Congressman Lee Hamilton. He had a profound impact on the state and the nation and uh, set a example of rock-solid integrity. In the area of politics, I think he, uh, in some ways, revolutionized the way Indiana politicians ran for office, shook as many hands as he could, uh, visited as many meetings as he could. So I think he enhanced uh, our state's reputation the way people around the country and around the world have viewed us. And I think he will go down as an iconic political leader in our state. Meantime, from Vice President Mike Pence, Senator Bai served the people of Indiana with distinction through his lifetime of service in the armed forces, the General Assembly, and the U.S. Senate. And Senator Todd Young, who you just saw also expressing some condolences, saying Birch Bai is a modern-day founding father. While we remember his legacy, my thoughts and prayers are with the entire Bai family. We'll have much more later this morning on Senator Bai's life and legacy. But today we're also talking about the week that was in Washington, the Senate rejecting the president's national emergency declaration, both of Indiana's senators siding with the president on that vote, though 12 Republicans did not. Moments later, the president tweeting simply, veto. Wednesday, I spoke with Indiana Senator Todd Young. How difficult was this decision? Well, you know, it was only difficult because uh, 
diving into the statute uh, and legal precedents took a fair amount of work. But after I did that work and consulted with some legal experts and policy experts, uh, the answer uh, was, was pretty clear to me. A, the president does have legal authority under the National Emergencies Act. B, uh, several presidents before him have, have declared all sorts of emergencies, uh, which frankly are still on the books, which is not necessarily a good thing. But C, uh, there is a crisis on our southern border, a crisis of narco trafficking and human trafficking. And so it was appropriate in this instance. Now, with that said, I want to say in the same breath, that uh, I, I think with 31 national uh, emergencies still on the books, there's room to improve congressional oversight in the emergency process going forward. Um, and, and so uh, I am working with other colleagues in the United States Senate to introduce legislation that will improve the national emergency declaration process. Well, and there's a lot of talk about that bill you're discussing to require more oversight and a lot of reaction to that on Capitol Hill this week and on on social media. Speaker Pelosi called the bill, quote, a sham that would allow the president to violate the Constitution just this once, in her words. Are you concerned about how that aspect of the bill would be perceived? You know, I'm concerned about Speaker Pelosi's harsh rhetoric and and politicization of seemingly every issue. Uh, We have a crisis at the southern border. Um, It would be great if Republicans and Democrats could come together you know, it was just months ago that Senator Chuck Schumer, uh, who is the minority leader in the United States Senate, agreed that we need border security, agreed that we needed physical barriers. But the entire Democratic Party seems to be moving to the left on this. It's really unfortunate. This is a national emergency. We need to come together um, uh, for the best interest of the country, but also recognize uh, that there, there are loopholes that could be exploited in the future within this law. And I aim to be part of the solution, not part of the demagoguery that we see too much around this town. When we asked you about a possible national emergency and border wall funding last month, you you said on this uh, topic of border wall funding, uh, you said, quote, any funding legislation has to be consistent with the Constitution. That's always been my threshold. That will continue to be my threshold. That was the day before the president declared the national emergency. Does that statement from last month in your mind square with your vote this week? Yes, 100 percent. Uh, read the National, National Emergencies Act and, and the many statutes uh, that fall underneath the National Emergencies Act, study the legal precedent, and I'm persuaded that uh, uh, legal scholars uh, who uh, don't come into this with uh, uh, preconceived notions or any sort of agenda will come to the same sort of conclusion as so many legal scholars had. I'd also say that it would be very bad precedent for our courts of law, uh, those who wear black robes, to make the final determination about what constitutes an emergency. All right, Senator Todd Young talking with me this past week. You heard us talk about Speaker Pelosi there. She also made headlines this week saying she thinks impeachment would be, quote, too divisive and that the president Is it worth it? I don't think we should impeach a president for political reasons, and I don't think we should not impeach a president for political reasons. But you have to be ironclad in terms of your facts, and we'll see where that takes us. Now, we asked Congressman Andre Carson's office this week if he agreed with the speaker. In the past, he has told us he was, quote, on the doorstep of impeachment. A spokesperson told us he agrees with Speaker Pelosi that impeachment proceedings would be incredibly traumatic and divisive for our country. That's why it's critically important that if 
an impeachment does take place. It's in response to clear evidence of violations of the law that must be addressed for the good of the country. We should allow ongoing investigations to continue. Carson, by the way, a member of the House Intelligence Committee. Up next, another headline this week involving Speaker Pelosi and Vice President Mike Pence. Why she just made his life a, a little bit more difficult on Capitol Hill. And also ahead, what the administration and Indiana lawmakers are saying about the tragic mass shooting in New Zealand and the ensuing discussion about hate and extremism. Next. A lot of reaction this weekend from around the world after dozens of people were killed in those deadly mass shootings at two mosques in New Zealand. And a lot of talk about hate and extremism. The president did express his sympathies the day after the shootings. Also, Vice President Mike Pence said this on Twitter. We send our condolences and prayers to the families of those who perished in the horrific mosque shootings. We condemn this attack on people of faith in the strongest terms. Indiana Congressman Andre Carson said, I'm grieving for the victims of this horrific terror attack, praying for their loved ones, grappling with this shocking loss of life, and reaffirming my commitment to eradicate hatred and Islamophobia. Carson also among those sharing his condolences this week for the family of former Indiana Senator Birch Bayh. And that is where we will start the conversation today with our panel, joined uh, as always by 2016 Vice Chair for the Indiana Trump Campaign, Tony Samuel, former state lawmaker Christina Hale, conservative columnist and radio host Abdul Hakim Shabazz, and former communications director for the Indiana Democrats, Jennifer Wagner. A lot of news this week, certainly, but we started the program today with some thoughts on Birch Bayh's life and legacy, certainly a, a towering figure in Indiana politics. Absolutely. And he, Birch Bayh is one of those people that, you know, maybe if you have haven't thought about him recently. You definitely didn't know how much he'd done until you started reading some of the coverage of his life, of his legacy, of his the, all the things that he did uh, when he was an elected official. And what just what an amazing human being, and how lucky we are to have called him a Hoosier. And a legacy that extended, of course, uh, down the family tree into his son Evan Bai, who uh, also served in the Senate. Yeah, down the family tree, but also I think the bigger thing is a lot of people didn't realize that he, Merch Bai, was one of the first people to actually author an amendment to the Constitution since the founding of the Republic, and not just one, but two, two yeah. but two of them. One for allowing 18-year-olds to vote, another one about the lines of secession for the president and vice presidency. And those are like, you know, those are just massive things that have impacted all Americans, not just here in the state of Indiana. For me, when I think of Birch Bayh, I think of a hero to all women. And it was extremely personal in my life, in my lifetime. Here's a man through Title IX who transformed sport for girls and women. So it, if you just see the level of, of play and the sophistication as we approach athletics for females in this country, it, it made all the difference in the world. Maureen Grappi of The Star made note of this quote from Evan Bayh's book talking about his dad's success in politics. He said, I don't think my father was perceived by voters as being as liberal early in his career as he was later on, that he was well within the mainstream of the state when he was first elected in the 50s. But of course, later known as a, a progressive in his time, rather remarkable that he won three terms in the Senate from a typically Republican state. Remarkable is a, a great way to describe him and everything that he's achieved in his lifetime, a class act. You know, when I was a kid and getting interested in politics like all of us here, it was people like Birch Bayh and Andy Jacobs and Ronald Reagan, people from both parties, because at the time they could work together and he 
he displayed that throughout his career. People came together a little bit more often yeah. uh, that, than perhaps now in politics. Let's talk about the current dynamics right now in Washington with Indiana Senator Todd Young uh, kind of changing his tune this week on the national emergency to some degree. He had seemed to express some reservations a couple of weeks ago, then presided over that Senate vote rebuking the president's national emergency. Twelve Republicans voted for that bill, rejecting the president's emergency declaration. Young and Senator Mike Braun both voting against that bill and siding with the president. Well, I think we, we saw some uh, real profiles in courage this week, the, those Republicans who did uh, vote for this. But, um, wow, I think what we really saw here was uh, several Republicans looking toward the future, future of uh, their electoral chances and going, ooh, I don't really think that I can afford to rebuke Donald Trump. I need him in my state uh, to make sure that I get reelected, and that's really sad. Was that the calculus, do you think, for Senator Young? He's also in a leadership position now. I, I, think, I think knowing Todd Young, having known Todd Young for years, you had sort of a, a bit of a policy calculation and a bit of a political calculation because we had spoken to him uh, about a week or so before he had made uh, his decision. He could tell he was trying to sort of, you know, where's, where's the median? You know, you know, does the president have the authority to declare the national emergency? But going forward, do we need to kind of clamp down on national emergencies? And he's he trying, he to, walk that yeah, trying, trying right? to walk that yeah. line. I mean, and he is right. I mean, the, the law does give the president a wide berth on national emergencies, and Congress should have done its job back in the 1970s to kind of clamp down on this. So hopefully going forward, they come up with something so presidents just can't declare national emergencies because they can't get their way in Congress. I, I think that's exactly right. And clearly, Senator Young was trying to have his cake and eat it, too. I almost feel like it hurt his heart to have to vote the way that he did because he's also coming up with a proposal to say, we need to clamp down on all of these and get a handle on it. And he's not ready to cede that kind of power and control uh, to the presidency. So it's complicated, and he clearly has complicated feelings. Well, in this bigger proposal, it seemed like there, there was maybe a deal that was in the works that kind of fell apart. Uh, the vice president was talking to a lot of senators. Uh, what does this say about his place in Congress there? The vice president tried to broker that uh, deal and save this vote in the Senate, but again, 12 Republicans uh, voted uh, against the president essentially here and with the Democrats on this on this bill. Block yeah, and it's too bad. It's just another example of Republicans falling into a trap that Democrats have set because it's the Democrats that have politicized this. This is an issue. It's a national emergency because people are dying because of things that are happening along the border. That's why it's a national emergency. Todd Young, Senator Todd Young, did it just right. He studied it. He looked at the law from the 70s that was passed in the 70s, looked at all the statutes, and he determined that the president has this right. And it is an emergency because of the 4,000 homicides that just happened in the last two years by illegal aliens, because of the drugs, because of the gangs, all of those reasons. And looking forward and fixing the statute because some of these other emergencies, they're not nearly as serious as this one. And we'll see where all this heads uh, next, perhaps in the courts. Vice President Pence uh, also in the news ahead of the St. Patrick's Day holiday today. He had a, a St. Patrick's visit on Thursday with the openly gay Prime Minister of Ireland and his partner. The Prime Minister said despite some of the controversy Pence has faced with the LGBT community, he said the Pence's offered a, quote, really warm reception in Washington. Perhaps not such a, a warm reception for the Vice President in the House of Representatives, where House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has reportedly taken away Pence's office space near the House chamber. The vice president still has an office on the other side of Capitol Hill, of course, where he presides over the Senate. But again, the big headline from Pelosi this week that she thinks impeachment would be too divisive, even as we hear about uh, more charges, state charges for Paul Manafort, more investigations in Congress. Do you guys take the speaker at her word here that impeachment is not a priority at the moment? And where does that put other Democrats 
like Andre Carson, who've said in the past that they're pretty close on this question of impeachment. Well, I think she made the right call. I absolutely do. Uh, and I think you're going to see a lot of Democrats falling in uh, line behind that, because I do think it's too much of a distraction. We have another presidential race on the horizon. We can solve this the we'll other way. We'll talk about that in just a moment, yeah. yeah we can solve this the old-fashioned way, which is just to vote President Trump out. I think, you know, to, to have the entire country go through an impeachment battle would not be helpful right now. And I think you're seeing Congressman Carson in his statement, you know, he, he's he's probably going to lead. He's going to walk that back a little bit. Yeah. It's, the, it's the episode of walking things back this week. Right. Abdul? Impeachment is for high crimes and misdemeanors. You may not like Donald Trump. You may have all sorts of four-letter words to describe Donald Trump. But one thing Donald Trump has not done is committed a high crime or misdemeanor. The Constitution is abundantly clear on this. I wasn't crazy about impeachment when the Republicans tried to do this with Bill Clinton about almost 20 years ago. Not crazy about the Democrats trying to do it with the president. This is why we have elections. Democrats also divided over 2020, as Jennifer mentioned, and what kind of candidate should go up against the president. This past week, South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg again making waves. A lot of national attention after his CNN town hall. Says he's raising money this week and already close to meeting the small donor threshold to make it on the debate stage this summer. Coming up next this morning, by the way, he'll be on Fox News Sunday. That's coming up at 10 a.m. on Fox 59. Meantime, another big name entering the race this past week, former Texas congressman and 2018 Senate candidate Beto O'Rourke, who raised a lot of money last year but took some time to decide whether he was going to get into the race. You have to wonder, perhaps, if all the attention on another young candidate like Buttigieg maybe played a factor in forcing Beto into making that decision this week and jumping in. I'm not sure. What I'm seeing in the Democratic candidate field is kind of similar to what I see right here in Indiana or even in our capital city. A lot of young people or younger people are energized to step in and they're not satisfied with just voting. They want to be participants and I think we're seeing it at the highest levels um, and it's really pretty exciting. Your thoughts on this 2020 field that's emerging to take on the president? Well, like Beto, um, you know, every time your, I see him, he does this and do that and do this, and I'm glad he's in because it's oh, just I'm more sorry, comedy that, relief for me. That, well, yeah. oh. so, so maybe Beto's trying to cap, I don't know, but uh, the guy really hasn't accomplished much. He's raised a lot of money from out of state uh, when he was uh, running against Ted Cruz. So. Just another candidate that's going to be flashy for a while, but really lacks substance on it the seems Democrat like side. This week on the, national, on the national level, some of the media attention about better work has, has pointed to perhaps the, a lack of substance behind this candidacy. Yeah, I mean, there have been a lot of flash in the pan references, a lot of, you know, is he going to spark and then spark out? Look, if I've got to bet on a young candidate, I'm going to bet on Pete. I think uh, that he does have all the substance that it takes to, to run for an office like this. And I think he's gradually getting out there, getting his name out there, raising some money. And, and that's good for him. $600,000 in one night. And also, Pete Buttigieg is not a rock star. That's the problem when you have rock star candidacies like a Kamala Harris or a Cory Brooker or Elizabeth 23andMe Warren and all the rest of these folks running around, they're more rock stars than actual people of substance. I don't necessarily agree with Pete Buttigieg and everything, but he's a much more substantive, solid, grounded candidate than almost any of those guys out there in the field except right. for Joe Biden. All right, up next, a heated debate at the State House over whether to build more hotels in downtown Indianapolis. We'll have the latest on that coming up next. At the State House this week, a lot of discussion about a bill that would help pay for new hotels, stadium improvements, maybe a new soccer complex. Our Haley Bull has more. This is a packed hearing lasting more than four hours, and what it boils down to is sports and tourism in Indy. It's a culture this state takes pride in, one of sports to cheer on and visitors to welcome, all a part of the Hoosier fabric, and all things a bill at the State House is touching on. 
If we don't do something now, we won't sustain the strong economic impact that benefits the state into the future. The future of Senate Bill 7, something representatives on the House Ways and Means Committee will consider after hearing about four hours of testimony. The bill is essentially a 25-year fiscal plan for the Capital Improvement Board, which manages Bankers Life Fieldhouse, Lucas Oil Stadium, Victory Field, and the Convention Center. It would support the current funding mechanism and broaden the tax area. This paves the way for funding to move forward to help keep the Pacers in Indy, upgrade Banker's life. For us to be sustainable in the long term, we need to secure the future of professional soccer here. And construct a multi-purpose soccer stadium. We're only asking legislators to give us, at this point, three years to work out a deal with the city of Indianapolis. The bill also broadens the tax area to include the expansion of the convention center. Our state's largest conventions who have said they are literally outgrowing Indianapolis. Expansion includes a ballroom, more meeting space, and two new hotels. There's oversupply coming. Um, there's not the proper infrastructure to build it. It's been a sticking point for some hotel operators, raising concerns here. We're invested in downtown. We want the Pacers. We want to solve the problems for um, the groups that have outgrown this. Um, we just think that there's a better way to do it. I haven't heard a lot of opposition to the concept of expanding uh, the convention center. and. Uh, state is, I believe, willing to, uh, to help uh, provide funding for that through the professional sports district uh, expansion. And the question is uh, the hotels. All right. That was Haley Bull reporting. We'll talk more about that with our panel on our podcast. And they'll be back right after this with this week's Winners and Losers. Time now for this week's winners and losers. Tony, I'll start with you. Well, happy St. Patrick's yeah, Day to everybody out well. there and to you. And uh, winners, I'm going to go with Senator, both Senators, Mike Braun and Todd Young, for standing with the president, but standing for the American people and border security. Christina. Um, winner, Birch Bayh, what a legacy he left, the people of Indiana, not enough words to express. Another winner, Dick Cheney, who behind closed doors really gave Mike Pence last week the business over foreign policy, saying it felt a lot more like the foreign policy of Barack Obama than Ronald Reagan. I'm going to take a different approach and go biggest loser of the week is former uh, Secretary of State and Congressman Todd Rakita, who has been on the phone calling Republicans trying to solicit support to run for Attorney General next year. Haven't you been on the taxpayers' dime enough? Go with the private sector, get a real job. It's a lot of one feeling. <laughs> you really, you love talking to that so much. Um, you know, we all lost a great uh, public servant and great history yeah. this week in Birch Bay. All right. And that'll wrap it up for this week's show. We'll see you again next Sunday in Focus. All right, here on the podcast, uh, after the show, talking with Jennifer Wagner, Abdul Hakeem Shabazz, Christina Hale, Tony Samuel. Uh, we had the segment there on the CIB and the hotels and what's going to happen here in downtown Indy with Senate Bill 7 and a lot of push this year at the General Assembly to try to uh, do some things to expand the convention center. The Pacers want uh, in on the action, the Indy 11. Uh, but the, the question here seems to be the downtown hotels, right, and, and whether or not the city can add more hotels and what the current hotel owners think about it. It's going to be an interesting debate. It is, and I mean, I'm a little bit, uh, I'm a little biased because I really want that new Hilton concept to come in. It to looks town. cool. It looks pretty yeah. cool. I'd really like to test it out, try it, it out. It also makes sense why owners of other hotels right. wouldn't want that competition. Are you yeah. a Hilton Diamond? I'm not. He's a Hilton okay. snob and a Delta snob, so I'm converted. Um, yeah, but I mean, when you, when you have people who are arguing against competition, you kind of got to wonder why. You know, obviously they're worried that the increase in convention and sports may not bring the necessary people to fill the rooms. But at the same time, if we don't expand those other two things, then how are we going to know? And, and things got pretty heated, I guess, at the CIB meeting Friday morning. Yeah, yeah it's going to be Friday morning. Uh, the hotel owners accused CIB, like, no, not listening to them, shutting down, not bringing them into 
uh, the process. Uh, earlier this week, when we asked the Speaker and Senator, uh, Senator President Pro Tem Rod Bray about this issue. Uh, they, they won't say they seem shocked, but there's like, okay, if they're this concern about this new hotel, where have the hotel people been before? Why haven't they come to us and let us know early on in this process that, hey, if you, if you bring in the new hotel online, our occupancy rate goes from 75 to 65 percent. That's sort of devastating uh, for all of us. Uh, but I do think uh, this has the potential, if, if not managed carefully, to maybe be that one issue that kind of blows up everything because so many things are tied that's true you know, are so tied to this and Christina you served in the General Assembly how complicated is a piece of legislation like this that has so many different business interests and institutions like the Pacers that are in the Convention Center that are so critical very to complicated too because it can it confuses the immediate need for some with the long-term strategy for the many so what I haven't even heard discussed as part of this is how about that tremendous new west side development along the river and how that might intersect with a project like this over time we keep talking about this year next year can we fill these rooms immediately we should be thinking much more strategically is this truly an economic um, pillar of where we are going with central Indiana based around tourism and convention business? Well, if so, we better take a good hard look at this and think um, in terms of what's best for attraction because people don't book in the next year or two anyway. A lot of these rooms might be empty once built, but when they come online and we can attract some significant um, business that's something that needs and that should intersect with our transport plan and our airport and all of these things that are bigger than any one one need and, and, and just piggyback on that too something else we need to keep in mind is what is the economic climate going to look like two three years down the road because we have this bad habit in this country lately about having recessions about every end of a decade beginning of a new one and so if we have a lot of stuff start coming on you know 2020 2021 what is our economy going to look like? Will we have the convention tourism business? And will we? And we do have to be careful about sort of overbuilding. Are you saying the Trump administration's economy well, is yeah, about I, to crash? I'd, I'd like okay. to jump in here. Yeah, it's a Trump economy, so the economy is going to be fine. Um, I, I have a lot more faith in Chris Gall and Leonard Hoops and the uh, Visit Indy folks and their studies, and they've shown this before. Uh, when when the JW Marriott was built, the same kind of argument was used that it was going to uh, you know hurt uh, the other hotels. Well, we've got more convention business and, and, and the uh, occupancy rates are up for all the hotels and we know that there are conventions that are looking for more hotel business here so you know it's one of those if you build it they'll come. And we've yeah. got some really big events coming here over the next few years yeah. between and the NBA All-Star Game, the Final Four is coming back in yeah. 2021, 20, worth mentioning on this selection Sunday, right? We might well, want to be an Olympic city. Yeah. I mean there are yeah, there's some really ambitious Have things that Super we could Bowl. do. Exactly. Right. And here's the thing, I mean we are not known as a state or as a people for um, taking risks or even maybe thinking bigger than we could. A great example of that is I was in the Conrad last week for an event and I'm thinking to myself, this beautiful hotel, this five-star hotel, right? Do you know what the original plan was for that parcel of land? Mm -hmm. A two-story Barnes and Noble bookstore. Yep. That's they, what was going to go to be there. down the street. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so, I mean, imagine if yeah. we built that two-story bookstore. Who goes to bookstores anymore instead of that beautiful... Oh, I do. You do? Yeah. Oh, well, but sorry, the other Abdul. ones in Noble downtown already closed. <laughs> it's already closed. Yeah, right. So, I mean, imagine if we thought small, right. we wouldn't have that beautiful hotel. And I think this is the time right. to, as Christina said, be thoughtful, plan long term, as well as short term.
All right, we'll see what happens uh, on that discussion. Another item we didn't have time for on television to talk about, uh, Senator Donnelly's uh, new job, joining a, a D.C. lobbying firm as a partner in its public law and policy practice. He'll advise clients in the financial services, defense, and healthcare industries. He's also teaching at Notre Dame. Not the first lawmaker to join uh, the lobbying sector, but it's uh, usually a not a headline that goes over all that well. I think, actually, I, I think I'm not sure if he's going to lobby, just to be clear, because I think there's like a moratorium. Sure, three years, I think. Uh, two years, years lobby, But you can still consult, right. you can still give, uh, you know, advice. And I think the fact that Joe was actually able to land a job so relatively fast and quickly, you know, after the election shows he built a lot of goodwill when he was in, you know, D.C., because if you haven't, you know, one of the worst jobs to be as to be as an ex lawmaker that nobody likes. Well, I'm like oh, I said, no. <laughs> we're going to go back to no, 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 no. Yeah. Messer also took that same path. <laughs> yeah, I was right? in D.C. much of last week in meetings with Republicans and Democrats, and I can't tell you how many people, when they knew I was from Indiana, said, "Oh, Joe Donnelly was such a fine senator, good human being. We are so happy to hear this news for him." What's his future hold? Another run at elected a, office? A really nice paycheck. Well, a really very nice, nice paycheck, which he deserves. And that's the thing. I know there are people who get mad when lawmakers go out and, and Dan Coates, you know, from the Senate, did a little bit of work in that side yeah. of things and then came back. It's kind of, I mean, look, it's what you're good at. It's what you're an expert at. And, and there's a demand for it. And therefore, nobody should be mad about it. I don't get mad at anybody getting paid and not breaking the law. Well, I, I would just add that I, I hope he does stay involved with the Democrat Party. I think I think they need him, and I think they need his voice of reason and and, and somebody that's uh, you know not going over the edge like I always say to the left. Your your uh, Beto O'Rourke uh, hand movements during the program <laughs> yeah. today were, were pretty yeah. epic. I mean, <laughs> I'm you out. Yeah. Face. Um, well, the people around him should be worried. And you know the thing about Beto or Beto, I'm not sure. That there's a certain way you have to say it, I guess. Uh, he does these kind of goofy things. The thing that he did with uh, going to the dentist chair—I don't get that. Uh, uh, and, and having that streamed live. Or, uh, Is it Beto or Beto? I, I think it's Beto. Yeah. But, then, but to be you know, fair, we are a ridiculous culture when it comes to making fun of. Like the, last week, Mitt Romney had a birthday. He blew out his it was, candles it was on kind his of birthday. Unusual, one by one. I know, but did it need to be proclaimed that Mitt Romney blows out his candles like a serial killer? That's a little far. <laughs> like Twitter, Twitter went a little overboard. And, and, and it's, it's like that's the one thing that people catch on to this day and age. Yeah, it's all about humanizing ourselves. About. Like yeah. uh, Governor Holcomb. These guys are going overboard. Governor Holcomb yeah. tweeting out photos of himself at McDonald's in Germany. Now I'd say that wasn't a positive. I mean, maybe he wanted to be tweeting about his schnitzel rather than his <laughs> his Big Mac, but. You know, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I don't know. What did you just say? <laughs> <laughs> and this will be the censored version of the InFocus podcast. And this got really uncomfortable real fast, real quick. Wow. Uh, but there are a lot of important things happening in Washington. Obviously, the national emergency discussion dominated some headlines this week. A lot of talk about... Um, you know, where that's headed next, perhaps, to the courts. And uh, as the president uh, tweets out on Thursday, uh, a one-word tweet, veto. Veto by tweet. I mean, and any more likely he will, and it won't, and, it will, and his veto will, will not be over, overridden because... There weren't just, enough votes there yeah, on this yeah, vote. Yeah, right? yeah the, 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 there are definitely enough votes in the House. They need about at least 60 or 67 in the Senate to override a presidential veto. Uh, what, I, what I do think is, is more important and this is where, like we talked about earlier in the program about Todd Young sort of you know, playing King Solomon, kind of splitting the political baby on this one, which is going forward you know, with these uh, national emergencies, a better definition of, of what they are, how long they can be declared, and how long does it take before a president has to go to Congress you know, to get the authorization to do whatever. You know, we, we did this thing back because of the Vietnam War you know, called the War Powers Act. It's a president had to, delay, to deploy troops 
you know, for more than 90 days without going to Congress and saying, okay, I need your permission to do so. I mean, we want to give the president the flexibility you know, to be the executive branch of government, but you know, we do have this you know, checks and balances system and the job of Congress. And I'd say this whether it was Donald Trump or Barack Obama or anybody, their job is to be a check on the presidency. He's not a king, not an emperor, not a monarch. You know, this is what you guys are here for. Uh, where's this headed next, this conversation? It's not even a conversation. It's just an ongoing argument. No right. one's having a conversation. Everyone's just mad about it. Um, I have no idea. I, I, I think you're probably right. You know, I think obviously headed for a veto. Maybe there are enough votes. Maybe there aren't. And, you know, the, the conversation just keeps getting more and more difficult. We, we spoke this week on the program about Nancy Pelosi and her comments on impeachment this week. I didn't get down to the oh, your end yeah. of the table Thanks. on that. Tony, what were your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's, I mean, it's all uh, for political reasons. Uh, do you either, take her at her word that she's, that that's off the table or do you think? Well, it, I it, think if something changed and, and they latched on to some new attack that maybe they thought was going to uh, increase uh, polling numbers that would show folks would support impeachment, then they'd be talking about impeachment again. The numbers aren't there. Folks know that all of these attacks, not everyone obviously, but the majority of people know, uh, I think that uh, there's nothing uh, to the collusion or conspiracy charges. The Mueller report that's supposed to be hopefully coming out soon, uh, it sounds like it's not going to show anything that's going to support impeachment. And that's why I think they're covering themselves now before it comes out. You see, but so, I, oh, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, Jennifer made a really wise point earlier on this topic, though. And I think, to everyone should recognize that the people really want to solve this themselves at the ballot box. And yeah, is this just how it's going to be adjudicated? Is that what this all means? I, Does it be up to the voters? I think so. And I decide? think, um, to Jennifer's point, that is the healthiest way to go. And I appreciate that the, our party's leaders are recognizing that. Yeah, and, and piggyback on that, uh, I, I, just first of all, Tony and uh, the Manafort report, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I doubt there'll be you know, much of any collusion whatsoever. I, I do think what the problem has been, though, with a lot of these people. The uh, Mueller report. I think the, you said the, the Manafort report. Yeah, he gets to write his own report. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, served 60 days, motion denied. But the problem with these guys is it's never the crime that gets you in trouble, it's the lie. And when these people go before the FBI and go before the Justice Department, instead of just being honest and straightforward about you know, all their business dealings, even though how unrelated they think it is, sure. they tell other than the truth, and then they get caught up. No, like I said, no, most of these guys do not go to jail for you know, Russian collusion. It's for lying and for perjury and obstruction of justice. There was the uh, right. event this past week at the GOP spring dinner. Corey Lewandowski, David Bossie were there uh, talking about the, the, the enemies and, of Trump. And saying uh, Mike Flynn called him an American hero. There was a little bit of a... I don't know, a mini backlash from some Luger Republicans in the room uh, that thought, do we really need to hear all about all of this that you hear about on, on let, cable let, TV every day at, at the Indiana GOP spring? Let me put it this way. I had a, a couple lawmakers who were at the, the GOP dinner that Monday night and the uh, chamber state dinner, chamber dinner on Tuesday night with Arthur Brooks of the American Enterprise Institute. And they said, Abdul, we noticed a, a, a interesting dichotomy. At the political event, they were talking about the enemies of Trump. At the business event, it was love your enemies and communicate with them and be civil. That tells me everything I need to know about today's politics. Well, I was at that. that I didn't go to the, the uh, uh, Lewandowski bossy dinner, but I was at that. Um, I was very impressed with, with that message and with the speaker at the state chamber dinner. And that's, I think, the message a lot of people are trying to strike to this it's day and age. Right? Something I found interesting, last week I was in the Appropriations Subcommittee on State and Foreign Aid, and the members from the left and the right, Republicans, Democrats, all really expressed appreciation for the opportunity to um, 
and really, uh, maybe I should say a lack of appreciation for the budget proposed by President Trump in this regard because there is shared concern about our foreign operations and sort of um, the nebulous and changing nature of our uh, traditional allies and what's happening and a discomfort. Um, so taking that in context too, the comments I mentioned earlier from uh, Vice President Cheney regarding um, this administration's foreign policy. I think there's just a lot out there that's bubbling up right now that um, is giving people pause and, and food for thought in the middle of the night. Well, and to bring full circle, because we were talking about Todd Young earlier, Todd Young did vote for that uh, Yemen-Saudi uh, Arabia resolution that kind of uh, spoke to a, a mood within the Senate to kind of um, take a different course perhaps on foreign policy. All right, we got to wrap it up. Uh, final thought on the week that was or what you're looking ahead to this week? Busy week uh, in the state legislature, um, but it's going to get a lot more uh, hectic and crazier here in the final six weeks. Um, I agree with you. I, I hope they get something done, but they might get caught up in a little bit too much nonsense. Keep an eye on the issue of changing the complexity formula uh, for schools. Uh, mm -hmm. Just real, real fast, real quick. Uh, by the way, we fund schools what's called a complexity index, and the more kids are in poverty in your school district, kind of the more money you get because, you know, kids in poverty are a little bit more difficult to educate. But the fact that the economy is actually doing better, there's less money going to schools in that part of that complexity index. And so now we've got this new sort of, you know, dynamic to the teacher pay school funding. Yep. A lot of teachers at the state house last week. Yeah, to the, to yep. the school funding debate over the complexity right. index. I mean, though technically this is a good thing because we have fewer people in poverty. Right. I always try to turn down the complexity index. Yeah, no, I, I, I like mine to be right. close There's to the zero. <laughs> Mine's like true. infinity plus one. Uh, yeah, no, it was just funny. That's true. No, this is it was a sad week. I think both yeah. here in Indiana, um, the loss of Birch yeah. Bay and, and New Zealand, and um, you know, hopefully, as Tony and Christina alluded to, they can get some stuff done at the state house here that will actually put Hoosiers first. But you know, I'm never all that optimistic until they sign a die right out of that session. Still several weeks away. Yes. All right. Thank you all for being here this week. We'll see you again next week, and join us Sunday morning on In Focus.